Sebastian is an amateur scientist conducting research from his home lab and mentoring young scientists via Binomical Labs. His mission is to enable agency through building open source research tools and allow anyone, and we mean anyone, to explore the world around them. Coming up, we talk oceans, the vastness of them, all the living things in different benthic zones, but also storytelling and a small bay drone made from trash. Welcome to the Living Revolution, where we explore the evolving field of synthetic biology. We're your hosts, Sandra Martinez and Zara Knuroshka, in conversation with scientists, engineers, and entrepreneurs who are harnessing the power of biology to tackle some of the world's most pressing challenges. I've been in love with the water for a really long time. And uh, I'm, I'm a fish, right? Like I'm a, I'm a big dude, so I'm heavy on land and not agile, but in the water, I'm a fish and I love the ocean. I love scuba diving. It's amazing. I had such amazing, uh, such enormous privilege to be able to get a scuba diving license and then being able to do a decent amount of dives. And um, every time I, 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 I dive, like I just imagine what's what's beyond my breath capacity. Right. Like what's in that dark, dark black where I can't go. Right. Like uh, as a early open open water diver, you don't want to go past like thir- like 30 meters is already a lot. Right. And um, you get to you get to a point where it's just so dark and so black and you stare out into the distance away from shore. And there's just so much ocean and 78 percent of the world is covered in ocean. So all life is aquatic. Right. The water is inside of us. Um, and we've come from the ocean. There's a very, very high likelihood that life originated in the oceans um, to some extent, right? And um, and so so that's the one place that I can't have access to. I can't walk into the ocean and walk into the middle of the Atlantic or walk into Antarctica without tremendous amount of resource expenditure, right? And so, um, so I had this really dumb idea, right? Which is initially I was going to... Uh, with my friend Sung, my partner in crime and all this, is uh, he's Nature Poker One on Twitter, by the way. Um, so he, uh, me and him were planning to go to Antarctica and be like janitors at South Pole Station and just like, well, we'll, we'll mop the floors. I don't care. Just let us go. Right. And so like we were planning on contacting people at McGill University and try to like figure out how to do that. And we eventually came up to the cold realization that the, the money's not there. It's ex- incredibly expensive to go to Antarctica, right? Like the the equipment rental, the military flight, the the justification for it. You know, you can't really tourist there, let alone go to South Pole Station. And um, I'm a big H.P. Uh, Lovecraft fan, right? So at the Mountains of Madness was like a big obsession of mine as a kid, as as much as I could read of it because it's like jargony as hell. Um, but uh, yeah, there's just something just just uh, nightmarish about Antarctica that I love. And so I said can I make a robot to go to Antarctica for me, right? Just like naively, I just said that, right? And uh, and I started doing the math and I saw some some teams that built like uh, solar robots that can travel the ocean, right? There was one that did uh, Hawaii to California in like 44 days, right? With like batteries and a solar, and a solar panel and a sail, right? Um, super efficient. I mean, this is like mechanical engineering expertise that I absolutely don't have, right? So I said, can I can I make like a really shitty version of that, right? This is like my evolver moment for the, for that robot. Can I make a really crappy version of that? That's just like enough, right? And, um, and so for a really long time, I wanted to build an ROV, an underwater vehicle, 
but um, that's a three-dimensional vehicle, and it's way complex for me to control, like to learn how to program to control it, because again, I'm bad at math, but two-dimensional, I can do two-dimensional, right? And so I'm building this like catamaran, and uh, I have a solar panel that just came in, that big guy over there, that's about like uh, a meter by a meter square, right? And it's 100 watts. It's not, it's not terribly powerful. But I'm basically designing um, an ocean drone ship that can have a, a winch, like a, a, um, a wind-up wheel with a claw that can hover over an area in the water and then go and then drop a claw down and pick up a sample and bring it back up. Like, and it how, how deep are you thinking of well, allowing okay. the claw to go down? Yeah, so, so right now I'm in the Long Island Sound um, there. So that's the ocean right there, right? I mean, that's the, the, the sound. So that is um no deeper than about 60 meters at its deepest right um yeah. the long island sound is also similar but then open ocean is really really deep but one of the caveats is that the bulk of life is in the sediment closer to the shore right and so i'm actually okay with it just being around here and just having an autonomous vehicle taking samples and then every day i just go to the shore it comes to me and then i take the samples and bring them home because i can't uh, I can buy a boat and just make like a really crappy version of that, right? Just like a winch, a hand winch with like a little claw. Um, but two things that requires me to physically be there, right? And uh, the second part, it's not that cool, right? It's not as cool as something that'll do it for you. And it also teach me a ton of stuff, right? Because I'm always trying to do projects that teach me something new. And so I got these crappy little motors off uh, Amazon. They're like 20 bucks each. Uh, and they're 200 watts maximum power. My solar panel only does 100 watts. So I have to figure out what the minimum speed is and design the robot in such a way that it's like as efficient as humanly possible. Because one of the challenges that I'm surely going to hate myself for is that I don't want to put batteries on the device. Um, because uh, lithium batteries in water, especially salt water, is a really bad idea. And if I lose the robot, I just don't want this bomb floating around, you know. And so... Um, so I'm using supercapacitors, which have their own caveats, um, and uh, solar panels. I'm basically making uh, a so purely solar-powered scientific research device, right, that can float on the water, generate its own power, ideally day and night, but um, nighttime's a problem, so maybe just the day, uh, and um, and be able to like select a part of of a piece, a body of water and then take samples from it, and then also do bathymetric scans with a fish finder. Basically get the depth, right? So you find the depth, you take a sample, you bring it back. And then doing metagenomics on those samples, I can slowly start to accumulate the sedimentary distribution of my local area, right? Uh, and understand a little bit more about the microbes and ecosystem about it. Because, so I find ecology to be the hardest science of biology, biological science, natural science. Um, because it's so complex. There's so many moving parts, right? And you can work at different abstraction layers. But if you do like molecular ecology, that new fancy word, that's terrifying, right? Because you're talking about organisms across kingdoms interacting with each other in a constantly changing uh, environment that's open, that's an open system. Because the ocean comes in, right? It comes in and comes out. So it's not a closed loop. It's not a pond. Even ponds have aquifers, right? So you have this like crazy dynamic system, and these people glean true practical information about the ecosystem um, with with just like pure badassery, right? Like just like a really elegant understanding of of life, and you know decades of research and stuff like that. And what I'd like to do is be able to come up with a an open source plan for this, such that people can explore the waterways around them, right? 
uh, maybe a smaller version of this robot or, or different iterations. Like this big one is just because I need a big winch to pick up a decent amount of sediment. Um, but also I might be able to get like a decent uh, relationship with the Coast Guard because uh, because of COVID and stuff, these places haven't been mapped for depth for a very long time. So what if I have the robot just go back and forth and map the place, and then in exchange, maybe I can get some funding. Because <laughs> that's public data, then I can then submit, and then the Coast Guard will be like, oh, okay, you've updated some of our our, uh, our trawling maps, right? Um, I mean, ultimately, I'd love it to be an ocean drone, right? And then measure at different benthic depths. No, not, not sediment, but basically take samples from like different depths of water in the water column, right? Because you have these cycles of microbes uh, and algae that cycle up and down day and night through the benthic zones, right? So you might be able to catch organisms that only exist in a certain layer of the ocean. There was a researcher at LAMGI, the Lake Arrowhead uh, Microbial Genomics Conference that I had a, the privilege of going to, um, through science Twitter, basically. Uh, Eileen Beckett, <laughs> she's, she's just like, so you're coming, right? And I was just like, oh, absolutely, sure. And so it's like a bunch of like badass microbiologists talking about their research. And one of them was about this like incredibly slow growing microbe that's like all over the oceans and just like trying to track. It's like SR14 or something. It had a very weird non-Latin name. Uh, and uh, SAR something. I don't remember. My memory is really bad. All I remember was I was so inspired by that research because he found a microbe that's so hard to culture that no one would have thought to keep those cultures alive long enough, right? Because it takes a month for it to divide, right? Like it's super slow growing, but it's everywhere. And the distribution and genomic variations of those tell a lot about like ocean currents, right? And this was discovered by literally physically taking samples from the West Africa to the basically crawling the Atlantic Ocean a bunch of times and taking samples. And I'm just like, if you can have a small robot to do that, even in coastal waters, imagine just how even more discovery we can have. Because you can take soil samples anywhere, but taking marine samples require extra levels of resources, right? So basically, my theme of like enabling agency um, and allowing people to explore. Um, is is always at the forefront right so when i'm looking at my robot i'm not like let me sink my life savings into this thing it's more of just like can i make it with garbage right so my first the very first robot that i i posted on instagram i call it scuttlebutt which is um a sailor term for rumor but it's also a really cute name and i made it out of like a chinese food container and some like toy motors right uh and it was circular and it moved super super fast right and i had this like radio receiver so that i can go up and down the Hudson River with, I mean, the, the East River, because I used to live in New York City, <clears throat> and like go around and stuff and have videos of it in my bathtub. And it was just so exciting to build useful things out of trash, right? That I'm just like, I want that to be the theme of my life, <laughs> you know, like build cool shit out of trash, right? That's that's like one of the, the core motifs of my life thus far. And the more I learn and the, the fancier my equipment gets, the more motivated I am to build even better trash, if that makes sense, right? Like use my fancy equipment to validate the trash and then uh, disseminate the plans for the trash with the confidence of validation attached to it. You know, like, oh, how powerful is the thruster? It's like, well, I bought this like new, this uh, this thruster scale thing that I invested in so that you don't have to do that. And I'll buy like 20 different thrusters and then characterize them and then generate this public data so that you just pick the one you like, right? Um, yeah, and just if I can get a high school to get on board with this project, that would be incredible. Yeah. Where where do you actually store this publicly available data? Do they go to yeah. some kind of big database held by like the specific authorities in specific areas or how does this work? 
So when it comes to bathymetric data, the, the U.S. Coast Guard and the NOAA, the National Oceanic and mm -hmm. Atmospheric Association, um, something like that, I'm bad with acronyms, but they are the, um, they're the purveyor of this type of public data, right? And they have like, uh, like river, river keepers, I think it's called river watchers or river keepers, where it's the citizen science thing to measure coliform on rivers and then upload them to a public database. And sometimes it's, um, it's, public organization websites with uh, funding and support from those from the governmental bodies, or it's the governmental bodies themselves, right? And there's, I mean, like, uh, citizen science and environmental monitoring has been a really popular thing, right? Because it's a way for people to do what I call participatory science, where you participate in one aspect, but you don't do like, you don't do hypothesis driven research, or you don't do uh, you don't contribute to the manuscript in a manner of like authorship, right? Which is something that I'm I'd like to explore to like to have big big projects like physicists, right? The biggest questions in physics have like a thousand authors, right? Why can't you have a thousand middle schoolers full name on the author list of a paper? You know, instead of just saying thank you to uh, Jordan High School Elementary thing, how about you just say like 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 Sally and Johan and Tyrone and Patrice and all all that and just just outline them as authors because they contributed right and they're just like yeah. oh but that's author inflation i'm like fuck off that's, that's no i mean it's it's giving credit where credit is due right thank you yeah and they're just like little kid little question big kid big question but the contribution is still real and i think mm -hmm. i don't think anybody's really exploring the um, the aspect of authorship as a motivation to have kids excited about stem Right. Because a lot of the STEM things are edutainment based. Like I love science communication. One of my gripes is that they tend to infantilize a little bit. They oversimplify and they make it more of a show, which is fine. Right. Like um, I watched Carl Sagan's Cosmos and it was beautiful. It was so inspiring for me. Right? But one thing that he did that I see a lot of science communicators don't do um, often is um, not infantilize is challenge people with with more complex concepts with more complex wording you know introduce it in a pedagogical way but don't just like like so these organisms they float in the ocean it's like yeah but where right and like use words like benthic zones right like you can you can inform in a, in a manner that's a good balance and i understand that social media is like quick rapid fire edutainment right that's what science communication on social media is but there's opportunities for long form storytelling where students are involved. Like imagine a student builds a robot with his elementary school, and then in high school, um, pulls the metagenomic uh, data from those and starts doing the sequencing for it. And then in college, they can do uh, larger questions about ec ecological studies, and they, they're using the data that they made as a kid to inform their future education. You know, that's like authorship and responsibility all the way down, you know. Like build yeah. a tool as a kid and then do research as an adult with with data from that, you know. Exactly. And it's it's also that it would be really helpful for students to also have in some ways like see more of a story within their own life playing out. Like you mentioned your own themes that you've seen come yeah. come around in your life. Um I also find, you know, with um including things like jargon, like you mentioned, um when when you give a person a, a word they don't know they're not going to switch off they're going to like we have google we have the internet they're going to go yeah, to the yeah, internet and go help all of human knowledge that. yeah all of you human know? knowledge at your fingertips yeah exactly and, and, and now with like things like chat GP, gpt as it as it mm. evolves you have conversations about it you can say like what does this mean but then like explain more 
mm. you know you can have even more feedback where the responsibility you have a mentor in your pocket right if we if we figure out how to like make him not make bullshit because people have realized that like if it doesn't know it'll make up a crazy story um which sounds very human it's funny uh but uh but if we like um, a later iteration of that type of technology will enable somebody to never feel uh, never feel dumb when talking to somebody in the sense of just like, oh, you said a word I don't know. That shouldn't be a slight on your ego. That should just be like, I learned it. You didn't. Now's your chance to learn it. You know, like when when um, when one of my uh, like adult students or like one of my friends from the DIY bio uh, community go just like, hey, how do I start? And and I tell them and I give them some links and I show them I show them the books that I've read and um, some of the recommendations. Afterwards, they start doing stuff and they're just like, just like, man, I don't know how you do it. Like uh, all of this knowledge and stuff, how do you how do you maintain it? And I tell them, I'm like, listen, the only difference between you and me is I have 15 years head start. I'm ahead of you by 15 years, but that's not an efficient 15 years. I don't want to make it feel as if like you have to like dedicate your life to this in order for you to have enough competence to interface. That's not true. You know, like my time scale shouldn't be kept as in like perfect efficiency for 15 years. Right. Because then I would I would be in a very different place. <laughs> you know, like um, like I would truly have my flowers by now. Right. It's what, like what, the way I'm thinking is just like if I had mentorship from the very beginning and somebody believed that, A, I want to do research and B, um, you don't need to be smart to do research. You just need to want to like you just you, you need to have passion in it. And that passion can't come if you feel stupid. Right. So it's like this deep irony that like you're pushing people away by making them feel stupid directly or indirectly. And in doing so, you're killing the people who actually had passion for it. Right. Because you having a, a collection of, of prior knowledge doesn't make you more capable of doing research. It just makes you more capable of understanding the concepts, the theory. But you can learn the theory, too. <laughs> it's not like an average person of average intelligence can be a great scientist. Like, I don't see why not to be an exceptional, like, like, uh, like scientific wunderkind takes a little bit of magic, right? It takes a little bit of a, a, a little bit of luck, maybe some talent and stuff like that. But that's not important. The most important part is that the average person can become a great scientist, right? Because especially in the natural sciences where you're observing natural phenomena, you'll develop your skills, you know, like the a good chef starts as as a dishwasher right like you can go to the cordon bleu and it accelerates your 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 understanding of it but if you have a passion for food chances are you're going to become a really good cook you know and so and i see this as the craft of biology is accessible it's just the academia as it stands it either infantilizes too much or uh because of the nature of how the profession of science works it's so hyper specialized that it feels intimidating from the outsider you know like when i look at all these cell biologists that do hyper specific um studies of like um like sub organellar resolution of specific protein trafficking or things like that like mind-boggling stuff which i i'm just a fan of i'm like this is really cool but i can't interface with it because they're just so deep in their niche right that like i need to know mammalian biology which i know jack shit about right <laughs> and like like uh cytoskeleton understandings and it just there's just so much to it to get to that point and the 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 one thing that i've noticed more most importantly is that eloquence and creativity kind of come hand in hand that you can't get creative with biology unless you've done it enough Right. And that's why I want kids to start doing it soon, such that when they get to the point where they want to have a home lab, if they do, again, I'm not pushing everyone to go into biology, I'm saying for the people who are curious, they have enough of an experience to start getting creative because that's where the fun is. Like I haven't start, I, I didn't have fun, fun 
in research until like maybe the last five years. Yeah. Where I'm just like, okay, this is amazing. Like this is this is so cool. There's just so much. And the only thing I'm missing is time and money. That's a wonderful feeling to have. Because if the only thing that's missing is time and money, I can make time, I hope. And money, I'm I make stuff out of trash, right? So uh so it's I, I don't like asking questions that are really expensive anyway. So those questions don't exist for me. But being able to um to get to the point where you can start acting creatively right? With biology, with the craft to start like, you know, imagine like you're a carpenter and you've been making chairs for 30 years. Eventually you start adding cool designs to your chairs. There's still a functional chair, but you have flourishes and beautiful complexities and stuff because you can, right? And it's the same question with biology. Like how deep your question is depends on your level of eloquence with, with the material, right? And how well you, you, how deep you want to go. And so like, I'm starting to get a little bit uh esoteric with my questions which is fun uh it's like turning into to experimental music a little bit um but i'm super excited because i don't know where this is going to go but uh it's incredible it really is thank you for listening if you enjoyed this episode follow us give us all the stars and share with your friends we hope to see you in the next one